The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, chaired by Maine Independent Senator Angus King and Wisconsin Republican Representative Mike Gallagher. He is also affiliated with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies in the Navy. Mark served as the J-3 at the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and is a legendary surface warrior. Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me again, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Uh, Mark, uh, great to be talking to you. We had three gangbuster days of our uh, coverage of the uh, Air Force Association's annual Air space uh, cyber conference, uh, a lot of really great conversations. So I commend our audience to check out our uh, discussions with Lieutenant General Q Highnote, uh, Lieutenant General Salty Saltzman, and of course, uh, the 26th uh, Secretary of the United States Air Force, Frank Kendall. And so we slipped our cyber coverage by a day. And so we're, we're glad to have you aboard. Uh, really busy time in cyber. Obviously, uh, the NDAA is, is going through the Senate. The House has uh, approved its version uh, that includes a budget increase of uh, about $25 billion over what the administration would requested. Uh, the Senate is working this as well. Walk us through the cyber components of this, because you had a very ambitious series of let you and uh, the co-chairs, uh, as well as the commission. Uh, we should point out Jim Langevin also uh, on the team. Um, you know, we're pushing very hard for a whole series uh, of legislation in this to keep moving the cyber defense ball. This as the Biden administration works to improve the nation's defense defenses. Walk us through where we are on all the different pieces of this. Hey, thanks, Vago. And you're right. It's a uh... During the same three days this week, it's been a very busy time, particularly in the House. The House um, brought its uh, uh, floor amendments uh, to the floor for discussion. In fact, yesterday they were voted on. Um, and uh, I think probably there was nearly a, a thousand amendments initially. Rules eliminated some of them, then debate eliminated a few more. But a lot of those amendments are now being you know, <clears throat> written into the base markup of the NDAA that was done previously by the House Armed Services Committee. So that's all being brought together. There is a lot of cyber in there. I would say in the cyber area, more so than probably any other area in the bill though, it's not as much about Department of Defense, although there are Department of Defense directives and report requirements and guidance in, in there. It's as much about the non-DOD national security, what's done at the Homeland Security Department or um, or uh, the intelligence community or um, Commerce Department to support national security. Um, and, and that's why it's floor amended in, because if it was a DOD specific, it would have been in the markup. So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, in the, in the markup, there's, there's a number of DOD requirements in there. There's, a, there's some uh, procurement guidance for Cyber Command. There's uh, reporting requirements on the, um, on the CMMC. Um, there's guidance uh, on how the principal cyber advisor should do uh, his or her job, uh, things like that. In the, um, in, the, in the national security area, 
there's uh, some big changes to how uh, the Department of Homeland Security and specifically the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency or CISA should operate to bring together the, um, all the information that's available inside the government about threats and warnings and share that with the private sector, both at the unclassified and classified level and get information from the private sector. So this really is one of the big steps in the public-private collaboration that's necessary to protect that national critical infrastructure that enables our national security, our military, our economic stability, our economic growth, and uh, health and human safety, you know, water and power for, for uh, and food distribution for Americans. So that's, that's one of the biggest ones. It's called the Cyber Threat Information Collaboration um, um, Center, and uh, it'll be in CISA. It'll be part of CISA's joint cyber defense collaborative that the director, Jen Easterly, announced about two weeks ago. So that's a big one in there. Then there's uh, another big one in there and is one that has been debated publicly quite a bit, and that's um, incident reporting, a requirement right. for businesses to do is reporting. As you've probably, as you've discussed on the show before, there's a Warner Rubio bill on the Senate side that has a 24-hour requirement and some pretty tough um, fines and penalties for um, companies that don't meet the requirements. The House version is a little different. It's probably, you know, for lack of a better word uh, or phrase, a little more industry friendly, but it's also probably a little more realistic to execute. It's a 72-hour reporting requirement, um, which will get rid of a lot of false positives, I think. So there might be some value in that. It has a different fine structure that's probably more appealing to the private sector. And it gives CISA some, like the Warner Rubio, gives CISA some wide discretion on how they implement it. But CISA will implement it. And I think it's likely that that bill, which is Yvette Clark and John Katko, Democrat and Republican on the House Homeland Security, that bill will, I think, be taken up, a similar bill be taken up in the Senate and the Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee run by Senator Peters and Senator Portman. And we may end up with something very similar to Clark Katko in the final NDAA. We need incident reporting. One thing that will be added in is ransomware. Senator Peters has a personal um, you know, feeling about the need for uh, a reporting of ransomware payments, who you paid it to, how much you paid, how you facilitated the payment. Did you make sure you weren't violating OFAC sanctions before you made this payment? That kind of stuff. And I think that's a direct result of, of um, hearings with the colonial CEO that were that were suboptimal. And so Senator Peters said, well, I can, right. I can, you know, if I'm not getting the information I want from you in a hearing, I'll figure out how to mandate it from you. So I think there'll be some ransomware additions. That's a big addition. There, there's some smaller bills in there too. I won't go into all the details, but good I mean, ones like trying to depoliticize the CISA director by making it a five-year term appointment, kind of like FBI and Transportation Security Administration, you know, after the firing of the uh, previous director by President Trump, Chris Krebs, I think there's a stronger desire to get that done this year and other and some help for Chris Inglis and how he does his hiring uh, as, as the national cyber director. So smaller things like that, but they still make a more effective government approach to cybersecurity. Um, let me um, a lot there. And I, I think people can't 
speak highly enough of Chris and the job that he uh, tried to do uh, uh, on, on the role from a bipartisan standpoint. And that is one of those things that does give a little bit of stability, right? Why is the Navy good at nuclear reactors? Because it's an eight-year term. Uh, and so somebody, you know, and, and short of them doing some something really out of the norm, they'll they'll keep doing that job uh, and be able to have some continuity on on something that's an important national priority. Um, we're how do you think this is going to play, right? I mean, how much of this is going to is really going to make it through at the end of the day? I mean, you 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 talked about um, the the changes uh, at at CISA and the the crime part of it, which is important. I should also point out Dmitry Alperovich uh, of the Silverado Technology Accelerator, uh, one of the co-founders of CrowdStrike, uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times about ransomware and what to do. And I remember we had him on a couple of months ago, and we said. The, you know, almost the same exact thing about, you know, how do we need to approach ransomware and how to how to fight it? I know that that's a priority for the administration, certainly. Um, how much of what's in the pipeline now you think actually gets through the way that you guys originally intended it to? Because it's a very ambitious agenda. And most of it looks pretty positive, doesn't it? I don't want to jinx this because I know, yeah. you know, yeah, please, I know at the last don't. minute, all sorts of crazy crap can happen up there. But yeah. So please You're pretty comfortable where you are? So here's what I think. Um, last year, we were Senate heavy. I'd say of our two-thirds of our work was in the Senate floor amendments and Senate markup uh, and one-third in the House. This year, we flipped it. It's about two-thirds House heavy. So I think there's 12 to 14. These are the national security, um, cybersecurity amendments. So the ones that aren't DOD specific, I'd say two-thirds of them, you know, 14 to 16 in the in the House and about eight to 10 in the Senate. And of those 20 to 24, you know, some are repeats. So we'll say of those 20, well, I think we'll be fortunate to get 15 done. So about 75% of what we brief will get done. I think um, that's a good number. And if we get 15 more on top of the 27 last year, I think that's, you know, having 40 of our kind of 55 legislative proposals that we had broadly or in general from the our, our uh, commission report and, and white papers, that would be a good, a very good hit rate for a commission to have about 80% accomplished. But the real issue is, are you getting the right ones done? And, and I'd say getting national cyber director done last year, getting this joint, uh, this uh, cyber threat information collaboration environment done this year, um, you know, getting the, um, a force structure assessment of both CISA and Cybercom to make sure that they're being properly resourced and invested in by the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, respectively. Those are the big, getting the big ones done is most important. If I could say one other one that's an outlier that we're really gonna work hard on the Senate side, that's the Cyber Diplomacy Act. This is about getting State Department properly organized. State Department is, um, this won't be a surprise we work with them, in the cyber area is a little bit stovepipe. They have cyber in this bureau, cyber in that bureau, cyber in this bureau. We don't see that kind of integration. So Senator King and Representative Langevin have, have worked hard in the House and Senate to put forward bills. The bills already passed the House. We're working on the Senate now to integrate cyber at the deputy level or the secretary level, probably the deputy level where there's an office that reports to the deputy and get State Department organized in cyber. And the reason that's important is State Department needs to lead our work with our international partners so that we have kind of a shared approach to attribution, a shared approach to how you impose costs and hold countries accountable that, that, um, that host ransomware as a service providers or, or countries that allow cyber malicious activity. So a good example recently, the Chinese, we've attributed the 
Microsoft Exchange hack to the government there. Um, and, uh, and, and we did get our international partners to agree with us in the attribution, but we couldn't get them to agree with us in some kind of imposing of costs on China for what happened. So State Department has to get more integrated and resourced and focused on cyber policy and strategy uh, so they can lead the international effort. So that's one more. That one I'm a little bit um, less optimistic about, but I think the ones that I mentioned earlier in the House bill, I, I think most of those, if not all, will get through. Are, are you guys uh, going to get extended? Obviously, the commission was extended by another year. Do you think uh, that you should be extended by another year? And if so, will you be extended by another year? Because you guys had a very, very ambitious agenda. And as you pointed out, you're, you've really managed to move a needle in a way that we haven't been able to move in decades. But there's still a lot more work to be done. So uh, we won't be extended as a federal commission. Um, you know, we're two and a half year point, a year of you know, developing the report uh, and then a year and a half, you know, two uh, legislative cycles of implementation. I think that's about right. I do think, though, we're, we're going to have leftover work. We want to do, we did one annual assessment this year of how things are going. We want to do at least two more annual assessments, and we want to support legislative work next year. And uh, there's one or two final white papers that we're working on now on water and on workforce that we want to get done. Those will have to be implemented next year. To do that, we'll find some form of non-governmental organization to support Senator King, Representative Gallagher, Representative Langevin, and Senator Sass in implementing this. So I'm comfortable we'll have a vehicle to support the four congressional members. What we won't be doing in the future is developing new ideas, you know, like uh, here's some more new legislation never before seen, you know, to get that. What we'll do is we'll work on the stuff we have in the hopper, the stuff that doesn't get done this year, and then the stuff that we're working this fall on, on water and workforce and get that into play. So we'll still be working next year, but it'll be not through a federal commission status. Commissions need to end. Uh, and I think two and a half years um, after really only being tasked initially for a year and a half is the right answer. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the overall budget uh, situation really quickly. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Democrats are pushing the $3.5 trillion package. Uh, there are some people who say it's $5 trillion. There are other Democrats who say that actually, no, you know, some of these will be net positive for the economy if people, you know, don't have to worry about child care, for example, that has others, you know, or early uh, childhood education, um, you know, as we've seen, you know, has a long-term impact in reducing crime and, and you know, productivity of citizens and what have you. I mean, there are a whole bunch of arguments on this, but we have a debt discussion going on at the same time. We have Republicans that are reluctant to increase the debt limit. This is all the stuff that got us the BCA in the first place. And of course, you know, it's Washington. Surprisingly, politics are at play here uh, as well, right? I mean, I, you know, as one Republican put it, the worst thing that could happen to us is for the economy to continue good in 2022, right? So there are people who may be incentivized to somehow have it be less good, where are we on this overall, Mark, um, given that we are uh, in a national security recapitalization cycle? The administration is going to go along with a $25 billion increase. If there are going to be other increases, it looks like it'll be very welcome and very bipartisan in the support. You know, we heard from Frank Kendall, China, China, China uh, is, is the focus of the, of the department. And you and I both know that behind the curtain, there's also a lot of activity going on about that. How do you think this is going to play out and what are the implications for national security, cyber, uh, and and just the, the broader budget outlook. So there's a lot to unpack there. I'll first start by saying one piece of good news, the 1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that's passed the Senate is in the House now, has a ton of really good cybersecurity uh, 
investment in there, particularly with CISA, where there's over a billion dollars uh, worth of um, funding that they can use to help state and local governments protect their systems, which are woefully underprotected. And <clears throat> there's money in there for CISA to do a better job managing the sectors that they're responsible for. And there's money for the response and recovery plan, which is what you do when you start to get a cyber state of distress and a state and local government or federal agency or a, or a private sector uh, company needs assistance there's a way to help them as they combat a, a cyber a campaign or recover from a successful malicious attack. So some really good stuff in that bipartisan, and also great stuff in the energy area, uh, $250 million to improve cybersecurity at, at uh, medium size and rural um, uh, electrical power uh, utilities really needed. So some good stuff in there. I don't want to lose track of that. Um, there's, um, there's also some good, I've seen some good cyber stuff in variations of the reconciliation bill, about um, $865 million for CISA to run some really important programs, including continuity of the economy, K through 12 education, situation awareness. So without passing judgment on the overall reconciliation, I'll say I saw some good cyber investments in there. I, I do think that that de deficit issue is big. You know, I, I tend to lean towards the larger number that it's more than 3.5 trillion and I worry about that. Um, and I look to the Center for Responsible Budget and their discussion of, of the importance of, uh, of watching our debt and deficit, particularly if interest rates change in the future. And why that matters to us in the defense kind of area, national security area is that the defense budget and the non-defense you know, discretionary budget compete with debt payments, with interest payments on the debt with, um, with um, uh, um, Social Security, Medicare uh, distributions and such. So just something for us to worry about in that debt deficit. Very specifically, the $25 billion, I, what I saw it being spent on was some good stuff. There was stuff in there for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, um, you know, was about 5% of it, 4 or 5% of it. So that was some good stuff in, in there and some other good procurement uh, issues for the Air Force and the Navy particularly. So I was glad to see it. I will say, you and I have had this discussion before, but you know, you and I could design a defense budget for you know $650 billion that took care of China if we were able to eliminate a lot of other funding that was not focused on the primary efforts. But you could also build a budget for $800 billion. You could build a budget that wouldn't take care of China if you weren't careful. You know, so you have to be, you know, the exact amount of money isn't near as important as what it's being spent on. And so I hope that we get that focus on the Pacific. I always worry that the things like the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, that the very specific, the regionally specific items that the Indo-Pacific uh, commander, Indo-PACOM commander says he needs, um, if they're not being funded, then I'm not sure we're getting the maximum benefit from all the service spending. One uh, more cyber question and then uh, take you very quickly to the uh, Australia-US-UK submarine deal and what it uh, means, obviously causing a lot of uh, concern in the uh, very important uh, relationship between the United States and France. Uh, President Biden and Emmanuel Macron at least have spoken uh, and it looks like the two are going to meet uh, soon uh, over in Europe. But let me just ask you one question. We're increasingly hearing from uh, senior military folks uh, about uh, SCADA vulnerabilities, right? I mean, the underlying systems, uh, right? Everything has a multiplicity of chips in it. 
the provenance of those chips. There, some of these are Chinese components, uh, and some of them may actually be thoroughly infected across the piece. And you know, as we heard from Joss Losby uh, Noso some uh, months ago, you you can plug a brand new fighter aircraft to a 15 year old maintenance computer and in, infect it. Uh, Chris Cleary, uh, the Navy's uh, principal cyber advisor, has done an articulate job of saying, "Hey, look, you know, it, it's a couple of hundred million dollars a year, or." maybe a couple of billion dollars a year, but this is something important and we can we can really address it very quickly with some focused investment. But ultimately people are paying, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And they're like, well, I want that ship more, or that airplane more than I wanna do this sort of mundane investment. Well, the trouble is absent this mundane investment, your bomber isn't gonna make it downrange and your ship might actually be stopped because of a cyber attack in the middle of the ocean that completely messes up your system such that you're that it's irreparable. Uh, you know, or, or you're left with just Channel 16 radios and the like, right? What does Congress have to do? And, and does it have to be more specific in terms of carve-outs to drive the military services to do things that any expert in the ecosystem knows is absolutely critical, and yet the system isn't delivering on those? So, um, well, you're in good company and you're concerned. The Government Accounting Office, uh, GAO, does a report on this about every three years where they point out that cybersecurity is not a key component of uh, military procurement programs. And what, what, what they mean by that is it's listed at the very beginning. Cybersecurity, you'll make this kind of investment. And it's the right level, usually initially. And they usually look at 18 to 20 weapon systems. And you can figure out what they are when you read. They don't say the name of the weapon systems, but you right. pretty quickly figure out it's an F-35 or Patriot by just how they describe it. But these are new, you know, pr new production systems or upgrades or continued production of uh, modernized systems. And in every case, cybersecurity is set at the beginning at an appropriate level in the budget for the for the weapon. And then as soon as there's a budget, you know, a salami slicing, cybersecurity goes away. And when the money comes back, some new flute, you know, highfalutin, you know, modernization thing is added instead of cybersecurity. So by the time you get to the end product, you know, the, the you start to go into low-rate initial production. Cybersecurity has been written out of the acquisition project, and it's consistent. It's it's joint. It's all the services. It's going on today, and it's not acceptable. Um, Congress has has uh, passed law saying you have to take cybersecurity in in the new weapon system. They did that in the last year's uh, NDAA. It was one of the recommendations, recommendations Cybersecurity Commission and many others. We weren't alone in that. Um, we particularly concerned about things that plug into the NC3, the nuclear command and control, but all conventional weapon systems need to be checked for this. And your concern about this is right. In fact, I would say your example of a brand new system plugging into a 15 year old system, I'm not sure which one's gonna infect which. And it could be the brand new system. And, uh, and the most disconcerting part is in the GAO reports, they sometimes talk about senior leaders making these decisions saying, well, we thought there was some cybersecurity above our weapon system. You know, maybe some kind of chapeau that sat above it. And of course, there is no chapeau. There is, there is not a cloud of cybersecurity sitting above our weapon systems. Our weapon systems and our, um, and our um, weapons delivery systems are highly vulnerable to enemy penetration. And we need to make the investments in the cybersecurity of those devices. And I think the, the Navy CIO was right. Uh, whoever gave you that comment is it's more in the billions to fix this over the next few years. But but you do think that there is going to be that added focus and in order to be able to drive this ball down the field? Yes, I do. Outstanding. Uh, because I'm familiar with the GAO reports. Uh, and after a while, you know, you're like, wow, great. 
know, <laughs> more alarming stuff to which we're not uh, responding. Um, let me ask you really uh, briefly in the sh uh, in uh, roughly the minute and a half, two minutes we have left about the AUKUS uh, deal. Uh, obviously, Australia finally concluding what analysts a long time have said, and even Australian naval officers would tell you it's true, is we ultimately needed a nuclear-powered submarine. Uh, obviously, the challenge is that the United Kingdom tested its first atom bomb. I believe there were 10 atom bomb tests in Australia uh, that contaminated vast amounts of terrain, and there is a sensitivity to nuclear in Australia. Um, uh, there were performance concerns about the French. French maintained they didn't receive any warning that this uh, contract could have been canceled. But both French uh, and um, Australian and others tell me, look, they knew they were going to get a final decision in, in by the end of September. I think it's fair to say that people should have been much more communicative with the French so that this didn't come as a surprise to an important ally and partner. Uh, I wrote my editorial about this. We don't necessarily have to go into that. But what do you what do you think has to happen next? Because I think that it's very, it's not, it's unlikely to be a Virginia class because we're building two Virginias in a Columbia year, and it's more likely to be an astute. So how is it we do this and do it right, Mark, I guess would be my question. And what are the things that Congress has to do to support this, which I think the easiest one of which is just change the 1958 US-UK law. But I just want to get your sense on all of this and where it is we need to go in order to fit a capability, uh, get, get, a, get an important ally equipped with a very important capability. So first, um, I'd attach myself to almost all the statements in your op-ed on this. I think you hit it pretty right. I'd say, I'd say the you know the technically the step is to probably attach Australia to the 1950 um, amend Australia into the 1958 agreement, the US and UK. If uh, it, it, and obviously there's been some changes to that, but that basic agreement. Um, I I think the challenge we have here, the problem Australia had was they had a false choice six, uh, five years ago when they had to choose between a Japanese diesel and a um, French diesel, uh, that what they needed was something that had endurance, range, and uh, quiet and high performance weapons. They were always going to get a good front end from the United States, whether they went with a French system, uh, uh, if they went with a Japanese diesel or with a U.S. nuke, or if they went with a French system. Um, so, you know, my, my, my feeling was that um, was there was a false choice five years ago, and now they've made the correct choice. What they're going to get out of this, and it's going to be great because they're Collins class. They can keep them online for five, six, seven years. They'll have their operators using US, a lot of U.S. systems in those Collins, so they can transition over to the U.S. systems in, in uh, the new SSN. I do think you're right. The astute is the right answer. And, and the reason is because if we somehow can figure out how to do three Virginias a year in, uh, in a U.S. yard, then the U.S. Navy should buy three Virginias a year. We, we supposedly, we say publicly we need somewhere around 65 or 66 SSNs for our kind of wartime planning or operational planning. Uh, as you know, we're at about 51 right now, and we're going to bottom out at 42 or 43, seven, eight years from now. So buying more Virginia is something we need to do, and then buying the follow-on to Virginia. That's our number one requirement inside the Navy to deal with China. So the astute looks to me like the best answer with a U.S., probably with a U.S. front end. They'll have to determine what type of uranium, either highly enriched or, or low enriched, they want to go with on this. But these are all issues that need to be worked through. And I'm, I'm excited to get to this. And what we really need to do is engage the, Fre the French on other emerging technology issues. Uh, and particularly, and, and the French have a good footprint in the Pacific, the best of any European country on a persistent level. And we need to engage with them there. And we should have done a better job 
you know, uh, President Biden had promised us he'd have better engagement with the allies as decision-making occurred as compared to his predecessor between this and Afghanistan, I'd say we're not getting a passing grade right now, but the call to Macron might be able to turn the corner on this, but it's gonna have to be followed up now by actions to demonstrate to the French that we will be a good partner in the Pacific with them. Um, do you uh, think, um, right, I mean, the White House's answer to this, and, and they've told me as such was, look, uh, this was kind of an awkward negotiation anyway. This started at the behest of the Australians. We were hoping the Australians would be more candid uh, with their supplier uh, to cushion this blow because this was going to be an awkward discussion no matter how you cut it uh, mm -hmm. on, on, on that one. Um, do you, how, I, I guess the last question I would ask you is, What's the reasonable time? Three, two, one. Um, and, and I should also point out, right, senior U.S. Uh, officials have said, we're happy to support Australia so long as it, or at least privately have been saying, we're happy to support Australia so long as it doesn't undermine or impact at all the U.S. Navy's drive to get at least two Virginias and a Columbia, uh, given the Ohio-class ships are aging out. But in, in, about, in less than 30 seconds, What's the reasonable timescale to deliver this capability? I think everybody is looking at doing it quickly. So the reasonable time frame for owning and operating on their own totally independently is probably a decade. I mean, you know, you know, that's a ways out. They could be operating, though, with dual crews, you know, some UK, some US in there, um, you know, reasonably if they pick up on the astute line, you know, in five years. But that's that's a fast that's a fast thing. And that would involve a lot of, of partnership. Um, you know, the kind of partnership we showed with the UK on the F-35 is they had a delay waiting for the Queen Elizabeth to come online. So we've done this before, kind of brought crews back and forth with each other. I think this one, because of the nuclear safety issues, would have to be much more substantiated in, in policy and much longer and much more detailed. And once you involve naval reactors and anything, I promise you, you'll have a good paper trail uh, to kind of work this out properly. So it, it's a long time, Vago, but it's a it's it's a shorter period to where you're operating in dual or tri-crew situations, and then a longer time to where Australia is operating independently. Spoken like a true operational reactor safety uh, inspector. Well, well, well said, Mark. Thanks very much. Uh, appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program uh, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot, sir. Thank you, Vago. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.